Our scripture reading today is again from Psalm 51, today verses 7 through 12. Please stand as you're able for the reading of God's word. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is true, that it is eternal, and that it is life-changing. Speak to us today through your word, through your vessel, and accomplish what you will in our hearts, that we might look more and more like your son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This morning we continue in a mini-series to unpack David's confession of sin found in Psalm 51. And if you're just coming into the series today for the first time, I would very much encourage you uh, to go back and listen to the two previous week's sermons uh, so that you might gain some context Uh, and what has led up to the verses today, in particular the circumstances around David's life uh, that prompted this confession of sin. Suffice it to say that David had really messed up and was in a bad way, we might say. He would deal with the consequences of his sins, and his family would for the rest of his life. And yet, he found grace and forgiveness in the Lord. David did not likely understand how God was going to answer his prayer for forgiveness. However, his confession would be answered in one of his son's sons. David's first son that he conceived with Bathsheba died as a consequence of his sin. Generations later, David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would also die as a consequence of David's sin, as well as mine and yours. For God found us wanting and passed judgment upon his only son, conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit, born as a man in the royal succession of the king, great David's greater son, Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of this psalm, and indeed the fulfillment of all of the scripture. In verses 1 through 6, leading up to today's passage, we see David laying out his confession before God, his owning up to his sin, his understanding that he is a sinner by nature and that God would be just in pronouncing judgment upon him. But David, this man after God's own heart, he knows that this just God is also merciful. And so in this next section of Psalm 51, David reaches in deeply and bears his soul to God. He expresses his deep regret, his enormous fear, and his cry for mercy. 
He cries out for forgiveness in an unqualified way. He doesn't try and pass the buck to Bathsheba or the pressures of being king or even to God for making him the way that he was. No, David owned up to his sin and sought out God's forgiveness. But his prayer doesn't stop at simply seeking forgiveness for his sinful condition. David understood that not only does sin affect our relationship with God, but it also affects us. Sin causes damage within. And so he asks for help in dealing with his sin as well. Robert Godfrey says that in the first half of Psalm 51 up to verse 9, David pleads for the removal of sin. And in the second half, beginning in verse 10, he pleads for the renewal of the sinner. Another way to see this distinction, I believe, is through the doctrines of justification in verses 7 through 9 and sanctification in verses 10 through 12. Guy Waters helps us distinguish these two doctrines in this way. First, whereas justification addresses the guilt of our sin, sanctification addresses the dominion and corruption of sin in our lives. Justification is God's declaring the sinner righteous. Sanctification is God's renewing and transforming our whole person, our minds, our wills, our affections, and our behaviors. We're going to conclude our worship service today singing Augustus Toplady's well-known hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. In reference to Christ's atoning sacrifice in blood, we sing these words. Be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Sin declares that humanity is hopelessly guilty before a holy God and enslaved to its power over us. We need a double cure, one that cleanses us from the guilt, but also frees us from sin's power. This cure for our sin sickness is what Jesus provides in the gospel. And David understood the need for this double cure, as we see in his prayer of confession today. As he pours out his heart to God, he seeks not only for his guilt and shame to be taken away, but he cries out for God's help not to fall again and the power to move forward living a holy life. David and we stand in need of a double cure for our sin. As we look at each of the six pleas in this text today, there are a couple of things to note as we walk through. First, there's an underlying condition in David's heart and life that would prompt these prayers. And secondly, he uses the poetic device of parallelism that Dale explained to us a couple of weeks ago in each of these verses. Each verse is a poetic couplet, if you will, comprised of six requests. Those requests are further grouped, I believe, into two threes, the first three followed by the second three, as we're going to take it uh, today in our outline. So in verses 7 through 9, we see the first aspect of the double cure, David's prayer for cleansing from the guilt of sin, his need for justification before a holy God. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. 
Our first point, we could say that in essence, David prays, make me clean because I am filthy. Some translations read, cleanse or purify me with hyssop. But the English Standard Version and the King James have given us perhaps a better English word by translating it, purge me. The original word, chatheth, actually has as its root the same word for sin, and it literally means to de-sin, to reverse it, to undo it, make it as though it never happened, purge it from me. A brief look at the word hyssop will reward us with some beautiful theology. In Exodus 12, we have the account of the very first Passover, an event that God's people would mark out and remember for every generation to come. The day when God rescued his people through the hand of Moses out of slavery in Egypt. Beginning in verse 21 in that chapter, we read this. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. Hyssop was a small brush plant that had branches and leaves that were handy for dipping into something and brushing it or sprinkling it. It was the tool used to place the blood over the Israelites' homes so that the angel of death would not visit them that night as it did the Egyptians slaying all the firstborn males. Later in the book of Leviticus, we see hyssop being used to sprinkle the blood of sacrifice in the cleansing ritual for leprosy, making that which was unclean ceremonially clean. And at the pronouncement of the priest, the former unclean leper could enter again into the covenant community as one who was declared clean. Further, listen to the New Testament commentary we have in the book of Hebrews. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. David didn't choose the word hyssop randomly. He knew its significance in the ritual cleansing with sacrificial blood. David was seeking the removal of his sin by the blood of sacrifice. It was as though he was praying, O God, in the same way that you provided escape from the judgment of death to our ancestors in Egypt, passing over them because of the blood that was shed in sacrifice. In the same way that the unclean leper is declared clean again through the shed blood of sacrifice and welcomed back into the community of faith. 
In the same way that the sins of your people are atoned for by the sprinkling of the sacrificial blood upon the mercy seat, O God, de-sin me. Purge me with hyssop. Wash me in the blood that I might be whiter than snow. Make me clean because I'm filthy. What faith God had given to David to be able to look upon these mere shadows of things to come. How much more can we plead the blood of Jesus shed for us, sprinkled on the doorposts of our hearts? He, the fulfillment of all these things. So today, pray in faith, whether for the first time in salvation or for the thousandth time in confession of sin. Oh God, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. In verse 8, we have the second plea of David's. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Our second point is, make me whole because I am broken. David was sad and joyless. His sin had robbed him and it had crushed him. He recognized that the consequence of his sin, his brokenness, his lack of contentment and joy was actually from God. God will not allow his children to be satisfied in their sin. The peace and contentment that had been whispered into David's heart by the Spirit of God had been overshadowed with the loud shouts of the accuser crushing his spirit like a thousand crushed bones heaped in a pile on the floor. He longed to hear the former joy and gladness that he enjoyed with the sweet fellowship of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, how about you? Is the loud clanging anvil of sin drowning out the sweet fellowship of the spirit that is yours by birthright? Our justification, secured for us once and for all on the cross, is not here today and gone tomorrow. It is ours to enjoy now and forever. It is an unalterable state of being for those who belong to Jesus. And while our sin cannot change that reality, it can steal away the sweet fellowship that is ours in Christ. When the Lord crushes the bones of your soul under the conviction of sin in your life, take it as a mercy. Run to him in confession of your sin and be restored to Jesus. Make me whole because I'm broken. The third plea in this grouping is in verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my transgressions, all my iniquities. Our next point, make me pure because I am ashamed. Sin brings with it shame and guilt. Shame has been wedded to sin from the very beginning. After the very first sin against God ever recorded by Adam and Eve, we read... They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves 
from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Sin results in guilt and shame. David felt shame and didn't want God to look upon his sin. He was embarrassed. Perhaps the ancient ironic blessing was on his mind. Words that would have been readily at his mental fingertips at all times. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. For Israel, God's blessing was linked together with his face graciously shining upon his people. Peace had eluded David. He wanted the smiling countenance of God, not the frowning judgment of sin. And for God to look upon David's sin without some mediating grace was impossible. Because apart from that, judgment could be God's only response. So David pleads, don't look at it. Blot it out. Erase the stain. He desperately wants this mark of sin to vanish. He desires to be right with God and seeks his forgiveness for his offense. He knows that for God's countenance to be lifted upon him again, there must not be any residue or stain of sin and only God and his saving grace could provide that kind of purity. And our prayer is rightly directed to him. Oh God, make me pure for I am ashamed. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. This is actually an astounding request if you think about it. Why should David or you or me Expect to be made new, pure again, descend, unmarked, spotless, justified. I mean, when you and I are offended by somebody, we might be able to, with the grace of God, to find it within ourselves to forgive them. But to view them as pure and spotless, to never be reminded of or see that offense again, <laughs> rather, we will most likely forever see them with suspicion and fear, never fully forgetting what they did to us. But this blotting out of our sin is exactly what we seek from God. This is a bold and courageous ask, and yet it is exactly what we need. For if we are to ever be in the presence of God, every trace of sin must be eradicated from us as though we lived the perfect, holy life that Jesus lived. This is what David and we seek when we come to God for forgiveness. It's what it means to be justified. Listen to Paul's word in Romans. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. We stand in need of a double cure, and so we pray for cleansing from the guilt of sin. 
In verse 10, David shifts his prayer away from seeking cleansing from his sin to the second part of the double cure, which is a prayer for cleansing from the power of sin, his need for sanctification. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Our next point is make me new because I am wrecked. Sin wreaks havoc on the human spirit. The destroyer seeks to destroy, and the temptation to sin is his weapon of choice. There are a number of words in the Old Testament that are translated create or creation in English. But the one that David uses here, bara, is the word used in Genesis to speak of God's unique ability to create, create ex nihilo or out of nothing. Our sin-sick hearts don't need to be fixed or altered or reverted back to something that they were. No, we need a transplant. We need God to replace our hearts of stone with a heart of flesh. We need the miracle of regeneration. The process of sanctification, this growing in holiness and in likeness of the Lord, begins with regeneration. We have no hope of living a life pleasing to God apart from the prayer, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And for the believer, there is a sense that when we sin, we need to be renewed in our hearts in order to forsake our sin and pursue righteousness. David understood that without God's intervention of renewal, giving him a steadfast heart, that he would fall again. And it's an appropriate prayer for the man or woman of God who has fallen in sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Next, in verse 11, we read, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And our next point, make me secure, because I'm afraid. David is not building a theological case here against eternal security. Some have suggested that. As though sin causes us to lose our salvation or for the Spirit of God to leave us. But rather we are hearing the plea of a broken heart that is suffering the doubt of sin and despair. Prayers of despair like this are prominent in the Psalms by men such as Haman and Asaph and others by David. Men of God, leaders within the covenant community who struggled sometimes to know if God was still with them. Calvin says that the fact that David asks that God would not take away his spirit is evidence that he still possessed it, but was simply sharing his fears with God. This fear of rejection is very real for us, isn't it? We know God cannot abide sin, and so it makes perfect sense to us that when we sin against him, he would reject us. We would only be getting what we deserved after all. Even the Lord Jesus cried out from the cross in that moment when he became sin for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because of his cry, child of God, 
you need never cry it out. This is why it is so important to bathe ourselves in the gospel continually, to remind ourselves that Jesus took God's wrath and gave us his perfection that we might never be cast off or rejected. God's spirit will never be taken away from you, child of God. Yet, when we are absorbed in sin, our thoughts run to the fear of being abandoned by God, being cast aside, or of his presence being taken away. And so we plead, oh God, make me secure because I'm afraid. In contrast to David's fear and doubt here, look at his confidence in the Lord near the end of his life. At the end of 1 Chronicles, when David is handing off the kingdom to his son Solomon. And on a side note, following David's sin, he took Bathsheba to be his wife. Solomon was conceived in that marriage and was their son and in the direct lineage of Jesus. Oh, what grace. Oh, what grace we see throughout the scriptures. In God working through our sin, God working in the destruction of our lives to bring about his good pleasure and his will. In First Chronicles, David says to his son concerning the task of building God's temple, be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for the Lord God Even my God is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. How beautiful to see David as an old man, securely confident in the Lord's presence and grace in his life. And finally, in verse 12, we read, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Oh God, make me willing because I am demoralized. Sin is demoralizing. Do you ever struggle with repeating the same sins and mistakes over and over again? You probably don't, but I find that I do. I mean, how many times do I sin, seek forgiveness of that sin, only to repeat. David knew that apart from God changing his internal desires that he would fall again and again and again. He needed God to change his will, his want to. Paul describes this internal battle in in a somewhat circuitous way in Romans 7. You can hear his frustration in the way he goes about describing it. He says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The answer for Paul was Jesus. 
Paul knew that the only remedy for victory over sin was Jesus and his completed, finished work on the cross. He needed the Holy Spirit to change his desires. Mark this down, Christian. You will never defeat the besetting sins in your life by sheer willpower. The moment you say, I got this, you're probably seconds away from falling into sin again. We must, in faith, exercise the means of grace that God has given us, relying on the Holy Spirit to affect change in our lives. We must avail ourselves of the weapons of warfare that we've been talking about in previous messages that God has given us as we wage war on the flesh. His word, prayer, corporate worship, the preaching of God's word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper are sacraments. We must run to these because all of these bring to bear one message of hope and truth upon our lives, the gospel. Both justification, the forgiveness of our sins, and sanctification, being made holy, are graces given to us by our Heavenly Father. I think we're really good about understanding this when it comes to our justification. That it is only of grace and not something that we work for. But our becoming more and more like Jesus in sanctification is also a grace. Listen to the shorter catechism's definition. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. I think sometimes we act as though our progress in the faith is all up to us, and we've got to accomplish it out of sheer determination. No wonder we get discouraged. Perhaps this is why we fail so often. We think it's up to us to muster the spiritual fortitude to be better. But in this prayer, we see that David understood that he was wholly dependent upon God if he was to progress in the battle against sin. When we confess our sin to God, do we pray just as earnestly for God to cleanse us of the power of sin in our lives as we do to cleanse us of the guilt of sin in our lives? My guess is probably not. And yet this is the way the Holy Spirit guides us in prayer through David's psalm. That we would pray for both of those. So where do we go from here? What do we do with this message from God's word to us today? Well, certainly I think it requires some self-evaluation. I imagine the challenges of the last year and a half have uncovered some pretty big issues for many of us. Perhaps we have come face to face with some serious sins in our lives. Maybe today you're carrying the weight of the guilt and the fear of your sins. What do you do with that? What do you do with the guilt? Will you do what David did? You bring it to the one who can wash you white as snow. If this topic 
seems depressing and heavy and burdensome to you. Let me challenge you with this thought. Let's suppose you were diagnosed with a terminal disease and without any hope of getting better. That would be cause for sadness. But what if someone discovered a cure, a remedy that would completely make you whole again as though you had never been sick? Sure, the cure might be a bit painful and tough to go through, but it was guaranteed to heal you with no lasting effects, wholly and completely. How would you respond to that kind of news? No doubt it would be with much joy and happiness. A sobering joy, perhaps, but nonetheless, joy. Folks, the miraculous double cure for our sin sickness found in Jesus Christ through the confession and repentance of sin is not something to be depressed about. Sin is the road to misery and fear, but confession and repentance are the pathway to joy. David was miserable, but it wasn't because of his confession. He was miserable because of his sin. And part of his confession was restore to me the joy of your salvation. The message of the gospel is not one of doom and gloom for the Christian. For the unbeliever, yes, but not for the Christian. It is just the opposite of that. It is a message of joy and glory. Listen to these words from another of David's songs, Psalm 16. My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Yes, of course, mourn over your sin with a humble heart of repentance. But don't seek the mercy seat of Christ like a poor downcast orphan begging for crumbs. Come as a child of the king in full assurance of your acceptance and his love for you. Hear joy and gladness once again from the lips of the father who welcomes and celebrates the prodigal with open arms. For the price of your sin has already been paid, and the forgiveness you seek has already been won by the precious blood of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Come in joy and in thanksgiving, and have the joy of his salvation restored to you today. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what great news is the gospel. How glad we are that we are redeemed people in you and how thankful we are for what Christ has done. Lord, drive us to our knees in repentance. Reveal the sin of our hearts and give us your divine enablement to come to you in confession and in repentance and to grow spiritually, to mortify sin for your spirit to have power over it in our lives. Father, help us to live a life that is victorious in this area, even though it might be slow going, little by little. We thank you, Lord, 
that you will complete the good work that you've begun in our hearts. And that one day we will be free from all of this, that we will be made perfect in Christ for eternity. But until that day, Lord, prompt our hearts to keep short accounts. Call us to forgiveness and to repentance and enable us, Lord, to live for you, to live holy lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.